I would say underrated is an, is the integrity, which is really the like the history again of the individual leadership and what individuals have done in their careers and their personal lives. I'm a believer that it's kind of one size fits all. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 124 of the program coming at you right now. We've got another fantastic show on tap for you today as we welcome to the program. CEO and founder of Pana LCE, that's Low Carbon Economy, Miss Carolyn Abramo joins the program talking all things investments and what her and her company are looking at since they founded in 2019. But before we get to Miss Abramo, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits. Whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with eRenewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. Thank you for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can find out more about the company over at eRenewable.com. Give us a follow on our LinkedIn page, eRenewable and the Great Insider Podcast, so you too can be privy to all of the great information and content that we're providing over there at eRenewable and the Great Insider Podcast. And lucky enough to be a follower Friday where we will feature you and tell the story about what you and your company are doing as part of the energy transition. All right, let's get right down to our program today. Miss Carolyn Abramo. We won't hold the fact against her that she's a Bucknell grad. You'll hear more about that in the program, but great insight from her on all things investment, what her and her company are doing, and how some of the similarities from when she started in the commodities business 30 plus years ago, as I was 28 years ago, and how that dovetails and or correlates to what she's doing now with Pana. We'll also get into some of the things that she's looking at uh, as far as what kind of energy transition technologies her and her company are excited about and what they're looking into. And one of the exciting parts that she touched on is why the in-person meeting is always the big wild card when deciding whether or not to invest in somebody. It's a fantastic episode. You wouldn't expect any less. Please welcome to the program. Here is Miss Carolyn Abramo. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be here with you and Mike. Um, so it was just, op- it's opportunity. I think this is the biggest growth area that I've ever seen in my career. And, and this is a transition to first a, a low carbon economy. Carbon's not all of the picture. It's a big part of the journey towards reducing large scale greenhouse gases over the really the rest of our lives. But the opportunity to actually trade for carbon that there's actually a price. It looks a lot to me like some of the early days of my commodity trading career. I look forward to the the acceleration, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing now is that there's just there's more and more people. Um, when I say people, I mean companies um, and private investors that are interested in the space. What made you decide to get into the space when you know being a woman in the commodity world wasn't the thing to do or was a very niche 
thing to do and ultimately kind of how you've paved the way for, you know, the women that you're seeing that are doing this now. I definitely hope that we're, I'm paving the way. Um, I have to say it was just a tremendous opportunity. When I got out of college, I joined a company called Bankers Trust as a bank. Um, banks had great training programs then, they still do. Um, and, and I joined their derivative training program and was uh, my first assignment was the commodity derivative desk and was sent from New York. I'm, I'm, I'm a New Yorker um, by background, I still live in New York. Um, and I was sent down to Houston to work with our team when we were really just beginning to start trade the natural gas contract on the NYMEX as well as the, uh, the WTI contract. And it was a tremendously opportunistic time to be in commodities broadly and for the, the financial world to be able to de-risk commodity investments, meaning, you know, if you could lock in long-term commodity prices, then as a bank, you know, you're able to lend more money. And that really grew the industry um, in the mid-90s. So I just jumped on it, uh, frankly. My background isn't, my, my family is not in finance. As a business major in college, I went to Bucknell. I was a management major. Um, wait, 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 wait. Actually... Hold on a second. Did you say you went to Bucknell? Yes, I did. All right. So the fact that Mike and I are both Jayhawks, uh, one of the most painful losses in my lifetime. Very painful loss. Was <laughs> losing to Bucknell in the, I want to, was that 08? I think we lost, or no, no, it might have been 04, 05, somewhere in there. It was. It, it, it was. I was. Were you at yeah, the game? No, did you go? I I was not at the game, but I watched. Was watching the game actually at a wedding, which um, which funnily, like everyone left the wedding and went into a side room to watch the game, much to the chagrin, I think, of the bride and groom. But um, but but yes, but thank you for that glory of you know. You're, you're what, welcome. 20, 20, the 20, fact 20 that we look, the fact that we just won a national championship soothes a lot of that blow because I had not thought about Bucknell in about 20 years. So I appreciate you uh, being a Bucknell grad, and we won't hold that against you today. God, that was even a first or second round loss, wasn't it? First round. First round. Yeah, because they were a 14 seed and we were number three, but I digress. Uh, so anyway, I apologize. By the way, real quick, are the people that are the people still married? The, the wedding you went to? You know, that's a good question. Yeah, they are. Actually, wait a second. Wait. Actually, I have I have to check. I have to check. I mean, COVID, there were some interesting things during COVID. COVID, um, COVID upended yeah. a lot of things, uh, marriage being one yeah. of them. So, uh, well, let's fingers crossed. Let's hope these folks are still married. So anyway, I'm sorry. I, but I, again, it was fascinating. So nobody in your family was in finance, though. No, there was no business. What decide, What made you decide to get into that uh, side of the world then? I have to admit money. Money was one of the, 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 the real, the biggest driver was, you know, I, my mom was a single working mom and, um, you know, being able to take care of our family was a really big, big deal for me. And, um, and finance really gave me the opportunity to do that. And, and really to see the world, I, I really hadn't traveled much as a young person. Um, I think my first airplane ride was kind of after college being involved with commodities was, which, you know, makes the world work. It's the backbone of our global GDP. It was a tremendous opportunity. And Houston was my first stop and love living in Houston. I definitely a time when things were a lot smaller in Houston, but in terms of access to the energy community, I just couldn't have been luckier. Um, and to have those roots and, and develop relationships with companies um, and with peers 
you know, right over the, it's not quite 30 years, it, it's about 28, but that has been the backbone of where we start Apana is really, is the way the the companies that I've been working with for, for 30 years have been evolving. It started out, yes, with financial contracts that allowed them to grow, but it was technology that really pushed pushed them forward with shell technology, with liquefaction, with the early days of renewables. That is how the business has always been grown. And the companies that I've been doing business with for you know almost 30 years are leading the charge. And they're really the only only players or actors in this, you know, this transition that really know how to just how to deploy large scale technologies into supply chains successfully. And we need them very much. And so it's thrilling for me because their involvement has, has only accelerated and being able to work with them very closely, you know, in Houston and around the world is a tremendous opportunity. You mentioned Pana is your company. You started it with your capital, um, and you put together a team of, of folks that you've worked with over these last 28 years. What was that decision like to start your own company, venture out on your own, use your own money? Tell us a little bit about what that process was like and any nerves and or trepidation before you finally went all in. Great question. Of course, people will just tell you you're insane, you know, to start your own um, fund and platform as a, you know, a full fiduciary, because it's seemingly difficult to start uh, in uh, new markets. So, you know, low, low carbon economy are subsectors that we invest in battery technology, geothermal, waste of value. I mean, these are new companies. They are new, somewhat new technologies or processes. And traditional asset management doesn't really do a great job at, at new things. Um, there's the comfort of track record, you know, that that underpins all investments. I knew this um, when I left Lazard um, Asset Management, where I was a PM for their real assets uh, platform. But I said, you know, this has to be done. We have goals for the next 30 years in terms of the Paris Accord goals we have to reach. We, I have to get directly involved. I have to start you know, with a blank piece of paper and create risk guidelines that make sense um, for the stage of capital and companies that we were looking at. You know, I just didn't look back. I knew that the investor base was there. Um, it might have just been early. You know, the things that, you know, I've really deployed is my, is my network and people who've known me, you know, for, for almost 30 years and really just like, and moving forward the dialogue. We, we know this is what we need to do creating a metrics that people could actually understand, meaning these are, you know, high returning um, opportunities. They're driven by high operating margins for these companies. Um, they're not incentive driven. And then that's, that is also backed by um, large scale greenhouse gas reductions that we can prove. And so, you know, really sticking, you know, to that, um, and, you know, we've been able to, to raise capital. We've been really flexible by thinking about what supply chains actually need in terms of the, the technology. So matching those supply chains and those big real asset categories and energy companies, metals and mining, agricultural companies, real estate companies. Um, and so making sure that we're um, identifying those technologies quickly for them. Um, and as well, working with a lot of family offices that have assets um, in these spaces and have, you know, tra traditionally been um, backers, you know, of the large, you know, real assets categories um, and that they have things in their portfolio that they're thinking of transitioning. So it's been very flexible to kind of work on engagements where there is interest and that they're large scale engagements. 
And, um, and so we've been able to parlay individual opportunities or deals with each with with one company into our fund, which we're now raising for it's a $150 million fund. Have you found that um, you have to go about a little different now after the pandemic than you did before the pandemic, as far as how you're uh, going out to the investors and talking about what you're trying to do? Yeah, it's a great question. So we started PANA in the fall of 2019. It was very robust environment, you think, for new, for new things. Um, and, and the capital markets were doing well, interest rates were low, you know, a, a lot of money was flowing very, very freely. And since COVID, we've had, you know, kind of rungs of the in the last couple of years of first stabilizing portfolios, you know, most of the investors are, let's see what's going on. Let's, you know, see, we there was actually a lot of distress or potential distress, especially in energy. When energy prices really went negative or at the beginning or, you know, oil prices went negative in the beginning of the crisis. So um, a lot of existing um, opportunities or in the portfolio that were energy PE um, uh, um, assets, you know, a lot of investors wanting to make sure that those would, would, would perform. And, and interestingly, they, they really outperformed um, during, during COVID um, to the tune where, you know, a lot of investors have made a lot of capital. They've made a lot of return and not just in the private markets, but in the public markets. So you know, we've kind of moved from a potentially risky situation into one of which there is more capital. And, you know, during COVID, we took a great opportunity to reach out to a lot of companies plus investors and Zoom allowed us to do that all around the world. So I would say we were like hyper productive in terms of building our pipeline um, and, and creating relationships, but we definitely are missing the in-person and we're we're actually embarking on the rest of this year, a series of roadshows around the world to really talk about the transition, talk about our role as PANA, as a rational actor in this space. And I think that in-person correspondence is really going to help to liberate some capital that's sitting on the sidelines still. I think we're really excited to basically use both, you know, kind of Zoom and, and in-person now. So our first investment was last year, in February of last year, in a company called Brave and Environmental, which is a is a really good example of the kind of firms that we'll be investing in uh, with our fund, with our first fund. Uh, it's a it's in what we call the waste to value sector. It converts plastics one through seven, and that's a really rigid plastics that are difficult um, to process and can't be recycled through pyrolysis technology, which is not a new technology. It's really a, a heating technology. They produce a pyrolysis oil, which is what they call PICAM, which they can sell directly to the to refiners. Um, and they sell that through long-term contracts with many of the big um, refining companies, Chevron, Phillips Chemical, Dow, and Lion Dow are the, are the three big ones. And we, we really like that investment because we're, we're really focusing on commercially viable technology. So we're not venture at all. I should say that in the out, outset. We don't invest in early rounds. Um, we invest in usually series B forward. Uh, and it's just, an, it's just a, a letter, but series B, C, D, E, you know, the rounds that are, you know, big in size. So they're anywhere from $50 million to $500 million, where this is where technology companies are scaling. So they have technology that works. In the case of Braven, it's being able to produce this um, this pyrolysis oil on spec um, and consistently uh, at their location, um, their first uh, large-scale facility outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And now they have to produce 
they're producing about a million gallons a year. They have to produce 100 million gallons a year multiple times to satisfy these contracts they have with their refiners. So we're really looking at this like commercial pivot. We're, we're looking at things that are going large scale, can be deployed around the world, importantly solves for a large GHG reduction. So with Braven and I'd say the waste to value space, specifically with plastics, um, there's a, a huge need for from consumer goods companies for alternate materials that don't necessarily have fossil fuel components as their origin. So the ability to to change the, the molecular structure of the those the plastics is really important. So recycling, I say mechanical recycling, which is kind of the first piece, is is very important. But literally that gets us, you know, to a, a bottle that gets recycled two or three times and then ultimately ends up in a landfill again. So we're looking towards advancement recycling, which is what Braven um, actually does um, to change the molecular structure and essentially give the refiners now a low carbon feedstock that they can put through um, their large scale facilities. So, you know, with some tweaks in their process, you know, they're able to do this. And the the good news at the end of it is that there's a product um, that is, uh, has a green premium. So it, it, it essentially refiners can charge more for it. They can charge consumer goods companies, Unilever, Mars, Colgate, Palmolive, all these folks that are really looking for this material, they could charge them more. And the great, even better news is that from a consumer perspective, this material is a very low or small part of cost of goods sold. So we as consumers really don't see uh, the increase in prices in terms of a detergent bottle or a, or a crest tube of toothpaste. Um, so this it has economics. So, you know, distilling it down for us and our investments, it's, you know, this is this is all the same finance, the same financial models, revenue expenses, you know, operating profits that we deploy for any company. And the good news for for carbon reduction or for GHG reduction is that it drives economics that are favorable. Um, so that products that, you know, that command a premium and if it's done with low cost or reasonable capex, then you get great operating margins. So, you know, essentially that's you know where we are, and you know that's even our first investment in that in and around that waste value space. We, we have dozens of companies that are, are at a similar commercial journey right now. So we're really picking up speed, um, and we also we we look at all waste. We look at municipal solid waste. We look at organics um, and the applications there. Some of the other ones that. We, you know, we've looked at and are making investments in today are, you know, organics to sustainable fertilizer, you know, as one um, municipal solid waste, you can directly um, produce power and it can be clean power. So there are tons of applications happening. Um, so we'll be continuing to invest in that space. Uh, and then there are, you know, a few others that for us are very commercially viable um, and and really have both the return perspective that investors are looking at and the GHG reduction. Just in summary, people want to see these things, you know, that they, they make money, uh, they work, you know, they come in on time, the projects. And, um, and so I think that's one, that's our mission right now um, as PANA to show those as successful investments. When you start a fund such as yours, you have very strict bylaws or guidelines that you have to put in place as the type of investments you make for your investors, correct? Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit how that, um, how those guidelines work and how Panda has to follow that course with regards to each investment 
And likewise, is there a typical return on investment that you're looking for for the companies you're investing in? Yeah, great questions, Mike. So, so we did we started with a blank piece of paper in terms of how we would diligence the, um, these commercially viable technology companies. So we created um, a PANA, a risk, a risk score. So it's a trademarked um, a, a PANA guideline. And that risk score enables us to basically levelize all our investments. So we're looking at five key risks for each investment. Uh, one being technology risk, technology being very key is essentially, how can you go from a small platform of technology where, again, in the case of Brave, and they're producing something on spec consistently um, for, you know, for a, a number of days, you know, years, how do we go from that small blueprint to a really big one? So thinking through the technical and engineering reports, um, the staff that, that, that they have, the partners that the companies might bring in in terms of corporates that have seen it and done it before. So technical being very key. We look at um, commodity risk. So we, you know, we look at the, the revenue on the other side um, and also the feedstocks being the two pillars of that, you know, how, how dear or plentiful is, is a feedstock? Is it waste cooking oil, you know, where, you know, they're, we're essentially going to run out. And so we can't make as much, you know, sustainable, you know, packaged goods as we need. Um, or is it plentiful like a lot of the waste streams, but where is it, you know, logistically, like, do I have to get it to my location? Uh, and then when I'm selling my revenue, again, is it going to be a green, green premium um, on the other side of it? Um, and can I lock it in? I can I lock my revenue in for multiple years, like we did with the early days of the, you know, of the commodity contracts and we did with the PPA with solar and wind, extremely important. So commodity risk, we look at execution risk. So, you know, the this is about the team um, that's in place for the company. Um, you know, are they ones that can execute on their plan? Um, do they need partners? Uh, you know, and then funding risk is the fourth one. Do they need more capital? Do they have enough capital to a lot of our investments? They end up where we need to build a lot of things. So do they have that capital? Are they going to go at it at a company level with a build on operate model? Is it going to be more licensing and royalties? Is it going to be a combination of both? Are they going to tap other you know, project sponsors when they get to that project level to have a mix of equity and debt? These are all the very important things that kind of go into that funding for success to get you know from small to big. Um, and then the last piece we look at, which is extremely important, is regulatory risk. So we see how, how exposed the company is to potentially incentives that are in the market so that how much they contribute to their revenue and operating margins and lack thereof, you know, so just where there's nascent, there's nascency, like with plastics there, we don't have a plastics incentive or, a, you know, carbon incentive in the United States right now. So, you know, the, basically the companies have to operate outside of that. And then also, you know, time to market. So for things like nuclear, so, you know, we're looking at everything that's viable in the market today um, in terms of our, you know, 30, 50 year journey. Um, but things like nuclear, where there's a lot of regulatory risk um, in terms of the adoption piece, um, outside of just the other four topics that or risk criteria that I mentioned. So we we scale all of these. We, we we rank each of our companies from a one to ten score. We are gaming for for the fund, which we, our portfolio it to be kind of middle of the road you know, in terms of that blended risk score. So we're looking at a five generally for the for the fund, and this allows us. This commonality of discussion allows us to evaluate many companies in many sectors quickly and assess them for for investors. So, 
corporations, it could be for individual investors, it could be for governmental agencies to put it on a same scale, you know, so they can understand potentially, you know, the opportunities and, and the challenges of the investment. So that's been for us really critical to actually start to assess the space. Um, and then the other tool that we developed at PANA is the PANA network tool, also trademark, which is essentially where it's our, our research repository where we're matching those supply chain needs for these for these technologies and creating the, that pathway. So yes, okay, there are technology groups that exist, but they're in, this, in the lab scale right now. So we have to get them into a larger scale demo facility. That's gonna take project partners, essentially just, you know, getting a timeline um, and some idea of capital uh, that needs to be deployed for you know each of the e each of the big supply chains. Where for I'd say for all of the sectors in our economy that are you know creating GHG emissions. Why is it that even using all the parameters that you put in place, why is that wild card always meeting the person in person? It's such a big part of every diligence part process. Like I think every asset manager out there is top on the list is have, you know, ha, you know, have we met them in their office? Have we sit, sat down with them? For us, it's have we visited the company in person and gone through the operations with them, met with the team, you know, got an understanding of the teamwork, you know, I mean, how the goals that they have, how they retain data, you know, how they mine data, how they improve. And I tell you, it's, it really, it's so different from, you know, a, a Zoom call and a diligence checklist that you're doing kind of, you know, over that kind of medium to actually sitting down in person or, you know, really more being in, in, at the facility because all kinds of, you know, additional questions um, come come to bear. And, and it really is so tangible to see the way people work together. Um, so I think, you know, so challenging, you know, if you've been raising capital in this in this environment, um, but now that we've returned to it um, and making sure that if, you know, if you are an investor and you're investing with other with other groups, you know, that they're having that personal connectivity. And listen, if they could, it could, if it could be that you've worked with the team for many years, well, you know, that's really the proof in the pudding. Are these is this team going to do the right thing? That's critical. And if you have seen that over time, because, you know, things always go bump in the night. Like I think, you know, one thing, I mean, I have the benefit of being able to be in a sector all my career, which is really growing and fascinating, but extremely volatile, um, not just, you know, from the, the pricing of commodities, but the structures that I worked in, I, you know, I, I worked in Enron um, before the bankruptcy. So just understanding that kind of when we're thinking about some of the higher level things, like people talk a lot about ESG, about environmental, social, and governance. Well, you know, at PANA and with our experiences, we're living it because we've worked with so many companies for so many years. We've not just worked with them, but worked as employees. So really understanding that the people that are going to be there working towards solutions, uh, because again, especially when we're building a lot of things, you know, there's always changes to the model. Um, for now, it's supply chain issues that are really very high on the list, clearly politics, you know, in terms of accelerating where we can do business as the United States, really, really difficult. And then frankly, just the government structure of companies and as they're changing, and I'd say public companies are very much under a microscope these days about ESG is that how they're actually, you know, for environment, how they're reporting on their scope through one, three emissions. Um, for the S and the G, you know, how they're creating diverse, 
leadership, um, how they're enacting that, how they're governing themselves. It's huge. Um, so I think you get a real sense of that when you've worked, you know, with the teams a long time. And in lieu of that, that you have spent the time to actually diligence them, talking to people that they've worked with um, for many years. So I think, you know, time, time in the business is really important. And um, that's kind of, you know, that's how we're this, how Pana, we're able to, to de-risk, you know, some of our companies. What's one of the most underrated qualities that you've ever come across when you're looking for looking at investment and what's one of the more underrated red flags when you're looking at a company hmm. i would say underrated is an, is the integrity which is really the like the history again of the individual leadership and what individuals have done in their careers and their personal lives. I'm a believer that it's kind of one size fits all. Um, so that I have seen disregarded time and time again in my career, um, diligencing. And in terms of, um, you know, red flags, potentially that could have been things maybe, or I guess the question, the question is, Fred, that they were overrated. No, no. What's, a, what's something that kind of flew under the radar for you or that maybe appeared like it flew under the radar, but you kind of caught it? And again, in your years of doing this, when you see that, you're kind of like, eh. Yeah. So, so besides the integrity, I would say just like the technical diligence and the chops of, you know, of the investment is that amazingly it, that, I mean, people a lot of investors fall in love with an idea and a vision and, you know, and listen, cause we've had a lot of success with that, with, with Tesla, with Uber, I mean, <laughs> the internet, you know, and the idea that, well, if we build it, you know, the, the, the market will come to it, you know, and, and so potentially not as much like stringent um, kind of diligence on, you know, whether it really, you know, can, can work. And if it can work, you know, is the marketplace there to adopt it? You know, so I, I would say, uh, and, you know, with some reasonable amount of time. So I would say that amazingly goes goes by the wayside, even though we have so much investment in technology. But I think, you know, that kind of leads to the binary outcome, especially for a lot of the early stage investments. Of it either works or it, or it doesn't. <laughs> what are the similarities from when you started out in your commodities career, 30, excuse me, 28 years ago versus starting Pana. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I'm much, I'm much more aware of the potential hurdles. Um, and I would say that the environment, even when I started in the mid nineties was very favorable to, to growth. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the technological advancements we've made since the nineties, not just with energy, but just generally, you know, through the, the large scale technologies, has allowed there to, again, be more kind of conceptual thinking, you know, and possibilities thinking. So I, I would say that's actually really positive. You know, at, at times it can be overzealous, but that growth has really changed the trajectory for me now as a, as, you know, starting Pana, I don't think it could have done it um, 30 you know, years ago. And I definitely wouldn't have had the tools in my toolbox, you know, in, in order to do that, it really, it was this is pan is the manifestation of the like really the 30 years of of developing these themes you know in esg and just seeing how the markets have evolved so anyway so i think this is a a 
singularly interesting time. Um, and I think for diverse managers, it's also really interesting because people also have more, listen, proof. There's studies to show, you know, diverse leadership teams make the best financial decisions. You know, so I feel like that's something like check the box and now we just need to find those teams. So I do feel like there's a head, there's a, there's a tailwind, you know, behind both the environment um, and, and also thinking about company leadership and the like, basically the right people at the table. We know we've got our net zero goals. We know we're, we're you know, we're doing carbon capture. We're doing wind. We're doing solar. We're doing battery. Um, you know, more EVs. We're, you know, the grid's becoming more and more resilient. Full turbocharged as we are towards all of this. What in Carolyn Abramo's personal opinion slash professional experience are these goals uh, obtainable and what needs to happen to where we can at least be on the right track to getting at least some of these things done if we're going to live in this more resilient economy? It can be done. And, it you know, you can look through a million different tech-enabled scenarios of different climate ideas or different technologies and, you know, how they would get to 2050 goals, just as one, 2050 or 2100 but we align at Hannah in terms of inclusivity about opportunities, meaning that we have to look at the opportunity set that's in front of us, which which is essentially to, to transition or to upgrade our existing infrastructure around the world. Uh, and with resource scarcity, we have to be very vigilant with that. Um, so I, I think that singular uh, thesis is maybe not as understood or embraced. And understandably, a, a lot of really big community partners in in the whole climate journey have been trying to figure out, you know, what kind of where they come out on that topic. For us, it is again that inclusivity you can see coming kind of coming from my roots about the industries that I know that are moving the needle, you know, with the biggest dollars um, as well as know-how. And that we can accomplish if you know we even look at the next 10 years with the existing technologies that we have we can get a very large way in terms of our ghg reductions so my answer for me is yes we absolutely can and we have to focus on the now and and what we can back from a risk perspective and a capital perspective and find the right pools of capital to do it um, we need trillions of dollars. There's trillions and trillions between corporates, private investors, and that's not even mentioning government. So I'm very optimistic that we can get there. Well, and we're certainly going to do it with uh, folks like yourself and your team. Real quick, just give us a 30 to 45 second snapshot a little bit. Where, where did the name Panna come from? Because I'm always fascinated by goofy stuff like that. And just a little bit about your team and uh, just who Panna is. So Panna means wealth in Sanskrit. And I actually am a, a yoga practitioner for over 20 years, actually yoga instructor uh, myself. And I really felt like it was important to bring those, some of those principles to bear um, a lot as we've talked a lot about, you know, people in this equation of investments. It's, a, it's like it is that is the, you know, the, really the biggest piece. Um, and I have created, you know, a team where we, we created a structure with Panna that is 
inclusive, you know, and, and is a diverse group of individuals um, who have great skills, but also work really well as a team and are, are looking for the sustainability of our platform to be able to keep doing the work we're doing kind of tirelessly and, you know, to, to get to our goals. So I'm blessed, you know, with great team, you know, with technical chops too. the two big pillars for, I think, success in this space are, you know, having team members that have been operators, you know, of large, of large projects, of large infrastructure, you know, commodity infrastructure that our team has been operators of and coupling that with, you know, with fiduciary chops. So being, you know, good investors, having experience, you know, decades in private equity, in venture, even, and like in, in asset management, essentially to understand the right frameworks, you know, in, in which to make the investments. So those are, that's what we brought together. And then, you know, and bringing in a team, you know, and having some fun because my God, why are we here on this earth? But it's not to have fun um, and trying to do things quickly. Um, you know, it's really hard to get things done in a big corporation. And I've worked tirelessly in many and that, which has given me the training that I needed as well as our staff. And now we're like, you know, let's do something that's sustainable um, and that people actually want to come to work, you know, and fight this good fight. Thank you so much for that, Miss Carolyn Abramo. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website, eRenewable.com. Next week, we have a commodities people-themed event as we're going to be talking all things Commodity Trading Week Americas. That's the in-person event that's going to be going down June 8th and 9th here in the good old city of H-Town. We've got Thomas Lord coming on next Wednesday. He's going to be one of the featured speakers at the event. And then, of course, uh, Mr. Howard Walper, friend of the program, Alpha Insight merged with Commodities People. And then, of course, we'll talk to Mr. Ben Hillary. We'll have them on as Follower Friday. So we'll hear from all three of them next week. So a very Commodity Trading Week Americas in-person themed week next week. You do not want to miss that. Shout out, as always, to the entire eRenewable team and Mike, Roger, Al, all the audience, all the guests. Without you doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Cash fools, everything around me. Get the money, dollar dollar bill.